Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Future of Content podcast. I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas. So uh, the part of the talk that we're getting to now um, is uh, kind of about all the different ways people try to make money, uh, people, content creators try to make money off of things that aren't actually content, They're like the content they create. It's actually harder to make money off of that than off these, some of these other things I'll talk about. And uh, when it starts out, I've just shown uh, the audience a GIF of this really little like five-year-old kid who's being asked by an interviewer, you know, do you make money off your art? And at first he nods, but then she says, really? And he just starts to cry and it's so sad, but it's so cute. But it, so you know what I'm talking about when we open, that's kind of... Um, you know how it is today, right? Like, do you really make money off your content? Well, not always, right? So uh, we'll talk about that. And another um, point of interest here, so I gave this talk in May of 2017. Um, Wonder Woman hadn't come out yet, but one of the things we end up talking about is like the role diversity plays in content and how more expensive content tends to be less diverse. Um, and we talk a little bit about a little bit about how long it's taken us to get to the point where a Wonder Woman movie could even get made. Uh, so when I say we're a month out from the first, you know, uh, big feature, um, uh, superhero feature with a, a female lead, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, so anyway, enjoy this episode, and uh, we'll catch you on the other side of it. So I feel really bad for that kid, but that's kind of the artistic experience today, right? It's like. You know, I don't really make money off of the things that I create. But increasingly, we're finding that there are other ways to make that money. Part of the problem is, and this is a whole other talk, <laughs> but a lot of content is now digital. And for any variety of reasons, digital things are not scarce, and they get devalued. And we could spend hours talking about the devaluation of content, but at the end of the day, the content itself, it is much more difficult to create scarcity around that content, to create value around the content itself. However, there are other things that are still scarce, which still hold inherent value, and that people are willing to pay more money for. So, a lot of people who are able to create content are able to teach as well because they know how to create content. They know, have some skill, something that they know that nobody else does, that they can start to generate. Um, into, uh, into value. And there's live events, right? So this could mean things like concerts. If you look at music revenue over the years, especially since 2010, what you see is that every way of making money as a musician, and there are many, um, more or less either flatlines or goes down. So if it's digital downloads, if it's CD sales, even while well, record sales are kind of going up, but generally speaking, these things either flatline or go down. The one thing that's consistently been going up in price for music is concerts. And why? Concerts are the one thing in music that are still scarce, right? Because you can only be in that one place at that one time at only one moment in history and then it's gone. So I can charge as much as I want for that depending on how badly you want to actually be there in that moment. That moment can't be captured in a way that's infinitely replicable like an MP3. Speaking engagements. You talk to semi-successful authors these days, a lot of them will tell you they make most of their money off of speaking engagements rather than off of books. This notion of crowdsourced patronage. So now I was saying before that thought experiment about spoken reasons, right? What if instead of paying for the comedy albums that spoken reasons produces or his individual videos, which I can get on YouTube for free, what if I just pay for him? What if I just say that I would rather he spend his time making art than working at Starbucks, and I am willing to donate 
$2 a month to that cause, or $3, or hey, maybe 20, maybe that's how much I love him. If you get enough of us to do that, he doesn't have to work at Starbucks. He can spend all of his time creating that art. And I can take that gamble that if I pay him to do that, to be spoken reasons, that will produce more good art than if I just wait for him to produce a new album and then pay for the album. So this is an experiment, but it's starting to bear fruit. There's also, of course, actual physical items, right? There's swag, there's t-shirts, there's these physical things. They are scarce, they do still make money, even going as far back as the early 90s. Uh, U2 did their uh, Zoo TV tour, which was the most expensive tour of all time at the time, and the only thing they made money off of was the t-shirts. So to go back to this idea of crowdsourced patronage, right, that I'm gonna pay for the person, not for the content, this might have legs, and here's why. So Patreon is one of the platforms that kind of has a mixed model for crowdsourced patronage. You basically, you basically subscribe to an artist. Very often a comic book artist, they're doing very well on this platform, but you subscribe to an artist and a certain amount of money goes to them every month. Now, in order to, for that to continue, they have to hit certain goals, a certain amount of content they produce, but that's something you can kind of negotiate. So it's this kind of mixed crowdsourced patronage model. Subbable was a platform that did the same thing basically for videos, generally science education videos on YouTube. Patreon bought Subbable. Anytime you see one company buying another company that does the same thing, something must be going right in that industry, right? There must be some value that people are seeing. And combined, these folks are able to raise $25 million a year for creators. So it's a robust model enough for acquisitions to start happening. And when asked about this, Jack Conte, the mastermind behind this deal said, they're not paying for the content, they're paying for the people. That's the value he sees in this. And you know, the humanist in me sort of wants to say, oh, it's really nice that we're valuing people instead of things, but we are, to some extent we are, and we've yet to see exactly how sustainable this is. If this works, for journalism, it'll work for anything, okay? So um, when I've talked about this before, almost inevitably we start to talk about journalism because journalism is what I call um, the edge case for the future of content. And if any of you have ever worked in user experience, when we talk about edge cases, these are cases where, okay, we're gonna build this tool and for like 90% of the population, this is gonna be easy. But here's an edge case. Here's someone where it's gonna be really, really, really difficult. If you can make it work for this person, you can make it work for anybody. If we can make the future of content work for journalism, we can make it work for anybody. The reason being journalism is in this, is in this terrible position of having real value, but nobody really wants to pay for it. It often involves uh, being told uncomfortable truths, so no one really wants to pay for that. And if you wanna get to those uncomfortable truths, it's really expensive, right? So high expense, you know, low demand, um, or demand where you sort of have to be convinced of the need for it, and never mind any controversies over what is or isn't actually news. So if you can find a sustainable model for this, and I'll give you a perfect example. Um, Local council meetings. More unbelievably valuable news happens at local, very local political meetings than you could possibly imagine, but no one wants to cover it, and scaling that is unbelievably difficult, right? So if you could find a sustainable model for that, you win content. However, people are actually trying. 
So some of these little screenshots you see here are of studies that Pew did around crowdsourced patronage or crowdfunding of journalism, where maybe I'm not paying for a journalist, but I am paying for a topic, right? I care about healthcare. I want to make sure that there's always good journalism going on for that, so I'm going to subscribe to healthcare. Another thing you see there is News Deeply. Has anyone here ever heard of News Deeply? Okay, you should, here's why. News Deeply was run by a woman who used to work, I believe it was at CNN, um, and what she found was that uh, if you were to try to cover Syria, for example, good luck. The actual things involved there are so deep and so complicated, you really need to be really on the ground and have a whole network. So she just built one, right? She just started doing that, and the first thing she released was this website called Syria Deeply, which had all this deep, deep, deep knowledge about what was going on there because they focused entirely on that. Now, here's the funny thing that happened. As she started to build out these sites, Syria Deeply, and there were other issues that they went into deeply, she and her team ended up becoming the experts on those topics, so much so that if, say, Exxon wanted to know we kind of need to know what's going on in Syria. They actually became the best sources of knowledge on it because they had the boots on the ground. Guess how much Exxon's willing to pay for deep knowledge about what's going on in Syria? All of a sudden, the journalists are the people who can command the most money for the information as opposed to the least. And again, we'll see how scalable this is, but there are versions of this. And what I love about this example, by the way, is Right now, there's a lot of controversy around cutting corners in journalism because that's the only way to stay profitable, right? I'm going to do clickbait because it's the only way to get advertisers and any other variation of that. Right here, she's making way more money because she's doing good journalism. She's actually being rewarded for doing better journalism. So again, it makes me hopeful. All of that having been said, going back to that behavior on what we're willing to pay for, there are actually times we do make money off of the actual content. So going back to the example of The Martian, Andy Weir first does a blog post, right? That's free. He turns it into an ebook. That's also free. But when he makes it into an ebook, an interesting thing happens. The people reading the ebook say, hey, this is great, but I'd really rather read this on my Kindle device or my Kindle app. Can you make a Kindle version? And he says, yeah, I can make a Kindle version, but here's the thing. They won't let me sell it for anything less than 99 cents. I'm going to have to charge you if I want to make a Kindle version. So he makes the Kindle version, and it does better. It sells more copies than the free ebook does. So not a very big price point, but there are times when we really are willing to pay for the better experience. Now here's the hope around this. Here's why this matters. If you set up a situation where there aren't just one or two or three or four gatekeepers, one or two or three or four big publishers or big studios that get to say who gets to be an artist, who gets to be the audience. The potential is more diversity, right? It may not may be any easier to make content, or at least to devote lots of time to it, but it might actually be a more equitable situation than we've ever seen. So, if you have lower production costs, if it costs less to make the thing, that means I don't have to go to one of these gatekeepers, right? I don't have to try to satisfy this racist here or that sexist there or that homophobe there in order to get my thing made, right? The gatekeepers are now much more diverse. Also, I don't have to be super rich in order to make stuff 
If that's the case, all of a sudden, way more people's voices get to potentially be heard, right? More voices get to tell their story because it doesn't cost as much to tell your story. That's the theory. And if anyone has done research on the uh, levels of diversity in cheaper production costs versus more higher production costs, please let me know. I'm looking for that research. But if you look at uh, web series as an example, um, you will find that there are web series that tackle issues that have much more diversity than you see on television, than you see in film, right? Um, Issa Rae, up in the corner here, um, uh, had her show actually, her web series actually picked up by HBO. Um, and on this very super high-tech chart that you see here, um, this is my theory, right? This is why I'm saying I'm looking for actual research on this. If something is really expensive, it's not going to be very diverse, right? And the theory being that, oh, well, if it costs a lot of money, it has to appeal to a lot of people to make its money back. Therefore, it needs to be very bland. It needs to be very straight down the middle, which generally speaking means, you know, rich white dudes. Everyone can relate to them. So the amount of diversity stays pretty low. As you get less expensive, it actually starts to get more diverse. Um, so let's look at superhero movies as an example, right? We've already seen two superhero television shows that revolve around women, one of which even has a female showrunner, right? We've got Jessica Jones, we've got Supergirl. We're still a month away from the first superhero movie led by a woman. Uh, part of the reason is it costs way more, 10 times easily, to make that one Wonder Woman movie than it costs to make an episode of Jessica Jones. In fact, all of Jessica Jones probably costs less than making uh, Wonder Woman. So if you're in that mindset of, oh, if it costs a lot of money, I gotta appeal a lot of people, I don't think people wanna see movies about women, despite lots of evidence to the contrary, that's what starts to happen, right? That's why you see the order of diversity go from web series, okay, now we're ready for it in TV, okay, now we're ready for it in movies. But an interesting thing is starting to happen. So, I'm a content strategist, and I get asked a lot, hey, what do we do about those millennials? Hey, how do we grab those millennials there? Do we need to be on Snapchat? What do we do? How do we get, you know? And I get happy when this happens, because I get to have business justification for being all hippy-dippy liberal. I get to say, oh, well, the most important thing you need to know about millennials is that they're the most diverse generation in American history, by far. At least until Gen Z comes up, and that's a whole other kettle of fish, right? So if you really care about reaching millennials, you had better start caring about who is creating content behind the camera and who is in front of the camera, because these things now matter. So what you're seeing here is a screenshot from um, Watchable, which is an app that uh, Comcast introduced about a year or so ago, and it was basically a mobile app for curated videos that were sort of optimized for mobile, obviously reaching for that millennial audience because they're all on their cell phones. Um, but that was sort of very clearly in their marketing, we want to reach millennials. Like it literally would say that in their marketing materials. But what they did very smartly was when they said, okay, now we're gonna actually start doing original content, right? We are gonna do original content, and here's the thing, they launched with three shows. And those three shows, Ballin' on a Budget, Cholo's Try, and How to Human, exactly one white dude in that whole thing, and he's not even the lead, right? They were all 
diverse. Now, this happened about the same time that the fall TV season was coming out, and if you compared how diverse just these three shows were versus the 20 or so shows that each network was releasing, it was glaring. And it was clear that consciously, they understood it was important for their slate, if it was gonna re relate to millennials, to be diverse. This was not an accident. This was not an appeal to, you know, uh, trying to be progressive for progressive sake. No, this was a very clear business decision as much as a diversity decision. And that's new, right? That's new for it to actually be the better business decision to be diverse. Another interesting thing happens with this is that it's not just about who gets to tell stories now. It's also about there are stories you cannot tell unless you have this kind of technology. So another Telemundo story. Um, there was a woman who had been the victim of an acid attack in Brazil. And the Telemundo producer basically said, okay, look, they had her in for you know, a story, and she still had some time, and they're asking, well, she has some time before she has to go, what should we do? And they say, I want you to do this. I want you to get your cell phone out, and I want you to start to film her, and all I want you to do is ask her one question. Tell us what happened. Now that intimacy of just sitting in front of a phone and telling her story and it was this, as you might expect, this unbelievable story. She was able to talk about that in a way that she couldn't in a studio with $20,000 cameras and all the lights on her. She was able to really be herself and tell her story authentically because it wasn't all of this artifice, because it was simple as a phone, because it was low tech. Low tech means authenticity. That's just how it feels to us. So there are stories you're not gonna be able to tell unless it's in this low fidelity way. And we're starting to see that with all the big YouTube stars now, right? A lot of it is just literally a face on a screen. That is hugely successful, it's hugely compelling, and it's very hard to get out of the mindset of, oh, if it's gonna be successful, it has to have high production value, but it really, really doesn't. In fact, that can hurt you, depending on the audience. So that is all uh, for that lesson. In the next lesson, we're going to get into this idea that uh, content can now kind of take whatever shape it needs to or whatever's best for the audience instead of having to submit to some kind of weird business rule or, you know, the way they don't have to have like 22 episodes of television anymore. You can have shorter seasons. This is like one example. But it's all about uh, tailoring content to the audience in a way we never could before. So we're going to get into that in the next lesson uh, for the Future of Content podcast. This is David Dylan Thomas, and we will see you next time.